agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm I'm doing uh, pretty well. I think uh, bet, better. Gosh, I, I always think I have something clever to say, but I, you know, we're recording early today, so I don't. I would that's right. I'm barely out of my better, better than the Justice Department legal team um, in Washington, I guess. This is how I'm feeling today. All right. Well, well, yeah, I am. I'm glad to be back with you on the show. I took a couple of weeks off, as you know, and it was, I, as I, I was saying to you uh, not too long ago, it was weird hearing you do the show with Jay. I feel like we're sort of like the podcast equivalent of some old married couple, and I saw you having lunch with some other podcast host or something, and it, right. just, it just struck me as odd. So, uh, uh, but Trey's a great guy, you know, yes. but I am... Jealousy. Yes. You know, I think so, actually, the green-eyed monster. But we are back together again <laughs> to do the show today. So, before we do, though, we want to start with Thank some of our newest Patreon supporters, Brian, Andrew, Sari, and Dan, who recently increased his level of support for the show. So thank you all wow. very much. Yeah. And of course, when you're a Patreon. Even in, even in your absence. Even maybe, maybe there's a, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a connection there. Anyway, uh, but if you're a Patreon supporter, you know the deal. You get that second full length episode every week. And you also get other things like ad free versions of all our shows and other stuff at different levels. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys to check it out. And also, I should mention that starting this week, this week, this week, it is early. We are start. We are trying something new. Instead of waiting until Wednesday to release that bonus episode just for supporters, it's gonna, we're going to have it drop at the same time as our weekend show. And the reason for this is since you know more often than not, I think we we cover things in that bonus show that we didn't have time for in the regular weekly episode. I thought it would be more kind of timely to make that discussion available right away. And that way it's available right away also. And if, you know, if you don't want to wait until, if you want to wait until Wednesday, well, you can still do that. So uh, more options, uh, more timeliness. And, but Jay, as you said, would binge, people really want listening. a second hour of us right away? And <laughs> it may be too much of a good thing. I don't know. But anyway, it's going to be there. We'll try it out. Uh, let us know what you think about it. And as always, if you'd like to hear our weekly bonus show, whenever we put it up there and you can't afford to support the podcast financially right now, totally not a problem. Just email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. All right. So today we are going to be talking about a bunch of things, the eviction moratorium, a vaccination uh, stat, the status of vaccinations and community spread and and uh, the latest on the infrastructure bill, new pollution regulations from the Biden administration. Of course, the stuff going on with Governor Cuomo, uh, sanctions against attorneys filing baseless election fraud lawsuits, uh, whether Jay is truly a defender of freedom and whether he's uh, concerned uh -oh. enough or not concerned enough about the threat of Donald Trump and uh, also maybe some stuff on health care. So that's a lot. And uh, I'm, I am positive a bunch of that's going to spill over into the bonus show. But before we get started with any of that, we are going to take just this quick break and then we will get going. All right, Jay, so let's start with the eviction, 
Eviction? It is early. Eviction moratorium. It's rough rough doing a little early. You know, oh my gosh, my mouth is not working. Anyway, this week, the Centers for Disease Control issued a two-month extension of the COVID-related eviction ban. And the announcement came after significant pressure from the progressive left, most notably from freshman Representative Cori Bush of Missouri's 1st Congressional District. Now, in May, a federal district court judge ruled that the CDC moratorium, which was put in place after a congressionally enacted moratorium expired, went beyond the authorized powers of the CDC, but the judge stayed her ruling while the government appealed. Then in late July, the Supreme Court upheld the stay, meaning that it allowed the CDC eviction ban to remain in place in a five to four decision. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was part of that five-member majority, made it clear that he wouldn't support an extension of the ban. And in his concurring opinion, Kavanaugh said that he believed the CDC had exceeded its authority in issuing the moratorium, but because it was scheduled to end in a few weeks, and that time would allow for distribution of like $47 billion, I believe, in congressional appropriated rental assistance money, he was voting to let the moratorium stand. But He ended his concurrence with this very important sentence. In my view, clear and specific congressional authorization via new legislation would be necessary for the CDC to extend the moratorium past July 31st. And in remarks this week, President Biden indicated that he asked the CDC for other options, but and that he didn't really know whether or not an extension would be rejected by the court, telling reporters the bulk of the constitutional scholarship says that it's not likely to pass constitutional muster. But the president also said that extending the moratorium, even though it's likely to be struck down, allows for additional time to distribute those rental assistance funds. Because as of June 30th, uh, uh, only around, I think, $3 billion of that $47 billion had been distributed, but uh, that was appropriate from Congress, had been distributed. So, Jay, what's, what's your take on this whole situation and the new moratorium and, 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 and all this related to this? Yeah, wow. So. Mike, if you remember last summer, I want to say it was last summer, um, then I, I, you know, I always get the question of, uh, you know, back then at least, uh, gosh, Jay, what could President Trump do that would, that would really turn you off, that would really uh, uh, turn you around, that you would say, I can no longer support this guy. And I, I believe it was somewhere last summer after he uh, issued the initial moratorium uh, where I came on the show and I said, this, this could be it. Um, uh, because I, I thought then that, that it was, uh, uh, over, overreach, uh, unconstitutional, um, intrusion into private contracts. Uh, and, uh, my opinion hasn't changed. Um, uh, when, when Congress did it, I would still say it was a, uh, an overreach, uh, but more likely constitutional. Um, but, but what we have here, uh, uh I, I, you know, and, and you, you said the, the federal judge, um, uh, in in uh, the D.C. district, um, but there have been numerous other federal judges uh, who have also held that this is unconstitutional for the the very same reasons. Uh, and in fact, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruled about two weeks ago. Uh, so you have one um, uh, appellate court ruling, again unanimous uh, appellate court ruling, that yeah, the CDC does does not have this authority under its statute. Um, and, no, and, and to be clear, to dig, to dig into the weeds a little bit, um, what the statute says is uh, the, the director may 
uh, take appropriate actions to remedy, uh, prevent the spread of disease. And then there's like a, a list of things, you know, such as quarantining, fumigating, destroying animals, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this and other measures. Um, and, uh, you know, the CDC and, and uh, President Biden uh, and at one point President Trump uh, tried to interpret that and other measures to mean, well, take over, you know, you know, the entire, uh, uh, you know, residential rental economy. Um, and, and the courts have said, no, when when Congress lists as a laundry list and you include a couple things and then you have the and others, the and others are meant to, uh, you know, reflect uh, things of the same nature as, as the list. Um, so that's the basis that the, the, you know, the courts have ruled on this, with the exception of, again, if you want to dig in the legal weeds, um, the district court in Texas uh, actually knocked the whole thing out on uh, Commerce Clause grounds, that uh, even if Congress did this, uh, there still wouldn't be uh, authority to do it. Now, that, that case is also on appeal. Um, and in my sense, is that's that's a bigger stretch. But, but regardless. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I side with that bulk of constitutional scholars um, who say, no, there's there's uh, there's no way this is this passes constitutional muster. So. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I I like the fact I always like the fact that you don't just rely on the media reports of these things, but you actually look at the underlying doc. You're a big fan of the underlying documents, as am I. And for people who are sort of following along, what we're talking about is uh, the the actual legislative authority is Title 42, Section 264. And you're, and, you're playing along at home. Yeah. Exactly. And I looked that up. You know, I interpret it a little bit differently than you do. And I, I read especially Section A is the one or Part A is the part that's that's cited. And uh, it, it seems to me I wanted to talk about that legal authority issue, because in his concurrence, Justice Kavanaugh specifically signaled out the nationwide Ban. And, and there's an important, I think, potentially, there's an important distinction here, because with just a blanket nationwide ban saying that, well, you know, what we are we are having we are having a sorry, ban moratorium. There's a moratorium no matter what the level of covid transmission is. Well, there it is. It is difficult to say that this is being clearly linked to the uh, stopping the the spread of any sort of uh, uh, introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable disease. So, but the CDC changed how it put in place this initial or this this uh, subsequent two month ban, and they specifically tied it the two uh, only areas that have substantial or high. Uh, case levels where in the, in, in the language of the, the moratorium, which would be like which would be exacerbated by ma exacerbated by mass evictions. And so it seems to me that, well, it doesn't seem to me this is, in fact, more targeted specifically to the CDC's legal authority. And, and I think at least even if you think that the CDC has exceeded its authority, certainly I think it is a closer a closer call than if it's just a blanket nationwide ban. I, I, look, it's maybe it's a slightly closer call, um, but that's that's like saying you know, I don't know your 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 team got beat you know 
42 nothing versus 42 seven. Uh, you know what see, I mean? Yeah, I, I, I don't see I, it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't see it that way because when I, as I read, as I read Title 42, Section 264, it seems to me that that is at least reasonably within the purview of the of the CDC. And I understand you have a, a different interpretation. I should point out that it, it seems to me that you your side is the side with, which, you know, even President Biden and the bulk of constitutional scholars are, are on. But I guess I'm saying that I don't think on the face of it that it is a frivolous or, or ridiculous argument, given that the ban this or the moratorium this time was crafted more uh, specifically on, you know, those high transmission areas. That's all. Right. No, I, there there is more there is more craftsmanship. Let's put it that way in okay. this one. But uh, again, as as the um, you know the numbers are borne out, uh, that uh, that number I think when they originally passed it um, a week ago was somewhere around eighty percent, um, and now they're projecting well at being eighty percent of of the country uh, counties in the country would be covered by it. Uh, now that's something like eighty seven percent. But I'm wondering because why that matters. The, the scope, because the scope of the the scope of the moratorium will increase as the scope sure. of the spread does, but. and will decrease as it decreases. Yeah. So yeah, well, so you know, in in the end, though, I, while I'm saying it's a closer call for me, I do still tend to uh, agree that this is uh, a bit a bit of overreach, though for me it's it's a closer call than I'd say is is for you. And the other issue I wanted to ask you about, and there are some legal scholars, particularly on the right, who have who are looking at this, have talked about this, is even if you accept this interpretation, even if you'd say, you know, uh, even if Congress say passed legislation, which according to Justice Kavanaugh would be okay then, right? Um, would this potentially constitute a taking? and thereby violate the Fifth Amendment's taking clause, which, as you know, Jay, prohibits taking private property for public use without without just or fair compensation. And right, I know there that. are some yeah. who make that argument. Well, what do you think? You are you are a conservative legal authority, at least to me. You I are. am. What do you what do you think about that? argument? And actually, no. And and again, full disclosure, um, I, I filed uh, briefs uh, in the Sixth Circuit case and in the, the Fifth Circuit case. Um, uh, so. Uh, you know, f- first of all, um, I, I, I want I want to hit on a couple other things that, that you didn't mention about the moratorium sure. that that sort of cut against the you know narrowly tailored kind of idea. Uh, and this is something that's, that's gone back to the beginning of the moratorium is there are exceptions for uh, things like uh, uh, abusive spouses or or uh, criminal acts and so forth. They say, OK, you can you can um, evict those people, which makes perfect sense. Right. Why would you want? To have those people as tenants, um, but it doesn't make perfect sense if the idea is we have to, you know, we can't evict people because they will spread uh, uh, COVID unless you somehow accept that that these people uh, are less uh, vulnerable or less likely to spread COVID uh, because they're being evicted for you know drug use as opposed to not paying their rent. Okay, before um, you before you get on to your second point, I, I guess I would say I see that I understand that argument, but I think probably. Uh, a counter and one that I would accept is that there's a balance here and you have to weigh the potential for spread for what would almost certainly be a very small number of people in that in those instances and the harm that would be directly caused to the potential for spread and the harm that would be caused by that. And reasonable people can come to different interpretations, but I don't see it as being uh, uh, 
illogical on its face, given that sort of balancing that a test that I would apply. No, fair, and that's that's a that's a fair counter argument. Um, the second uh, piece where I think it's it's a little weird is that you know what what about people who um, you you no longer have a lease, right? You can have leases that expire. As I would read the moratorium, I think uh, there's no duty to renew that lease, um, and and that that puts you know another class of people. One people you're evicting because they've breached the lease, right? They failed to pay. But if the lease simply expires, uh, do you have to keep them? Uh, I, I think most courts would say, uh, and, and again, I haven't done a deep dive on on what how courts have treated these types of cases. Uh, most likely, I think they've ever just has been held off because courts have said, hey, we're not doing evictions now. But um, there's also that other weird classification, right, of, of one group of people uh, could not be evicted, but another could. It just depends on their the status of their lease. Uh, which, which again, there, there's no, there's no connection to the, the health issue there. Um, but to your question on takings, um, the way they, the, they've gotten around the takings argument so far is in, in the, uh, the rules. It, it has, it said, listen, the rent will continue to accrue, and the um, uh, landlord would still have an action to collect the rent. So the idea, in theory, is, look, you're not really taking any money um, from the landlord because they can still recover it. Um, in practice, they can't really recover it, though. Uh, but but that that would be the argument that there's there's no taking because um, the government isn't not compensating you. They're not saying these people don't have to pay rent. They're saying, well, they don't have to pay rent now. Uh, and if they don't, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I'm actually so. I'm actually a little more sympathetic to the takings argument, maybe than than some people would expect, or, or certainly that more maybe than you are. I don't know, but it seems to me that what you're describing it's still it's still taking. It's just taking and saying, well, for a while, like taking and then giving back. Yeah. I mean, and and to yeah. me that that to me, if I am if I am in the position of a of a landlord. Uh, especially there and there are millions of small landlords. I mean, my, my father was a small landlord, had one or two little properties. And, you know, and, and so there were 40, a lot of 40 percent, like 40 percent of the uh, the residential rental market is is uh, uh, it, um, the residential properties are owned by people who own uh, like fewer than five properties. Right. So, I mean, and, and, and the fact that you are not able to get bring in any money while you still have bills and other things do, if that if that doesn't in any meaningful sense constitute a taking because that's due to a government a government action that deprives you of your right to collect rental income I, it seems to me that the, then a taking is, is essentially meaningless that we're playing word games here yeah well and, and also just, I'll just say in, in the, the practical real world the way this works out um, you know in almost landlords collecting on late rent, uh, is is pretty rare. I mean, a lot of times it just the, the person just doesn't have it, right? So you you keep the security deposit, you evict them, you move on. Um, there's there's really no no good way to get that money back, and I think everybody knows that. But again, there's there's this kind of fiction that, uh, well, you're not really out the money because well, someone still owes it to you. I'm I'm just saying that's the that's yeah. the justification. And I, I do want to point out that a, a friend of of mine, a friend of the show. Uh, forwarded me something last night, uh, an amicus brief that was filed um, in the uh, the the new 
like I shouldn't say the new, the renewed uh, challenge uh, to the new moratorium, um, which was an amicus brief by the Third Amendment Lawyers Association, uh, challenging this on Third Amendment grounds. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) New one. And and I think this occurred to me, and I don't remember if I said it on the show. If I did, and I really wish I had. Um, but they made the, make the argument, and it's it's maybe a little tongue in cheek. Um, but for 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 listeners who aren't playing along with uh, this or don't have their constitutions uh, handy while they listen to the show, um, the Third Amendment uh, forbids the government from quartering troops in your home, um, which was a big deal back in 1789, and uh, but uh, has become less so today. Yeah, you don't hear um, many Third Amendment arguments these days. Exactly. You know? um, uh, yet, uh, what what do you say to a a landlord who rents to people who are in the military? Um, right? Uh, is that landlord not being now required uh, to house troops, uh, to quarter troops? Um, so again, I don't. There's there is very little Third Amendment jurisprudence anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but I think that's uh, just kind of fun, and it you know it, it points out a little bit of the ridiculousness of this too. Um, in that, if you think back of what the framers were talking about, uh, they said, listen, this is, <laughs> you know, for the government to say you must quarter, uh, troops, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and now we have the government saying, well, you must quarter anybody. Um, right. I mean, there, there could arguably be, be some sort of reason why the government might require you to, to house soldiers in your house, particularly in, in time of war or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems it seems less so that you can say, well, the federal government has the power to require you to house anybody uh, for free at any time. Well, so. You know, the thing that really frustrates me about this is Congress had, has had over a month to act on this. The Supreme Court issued its ruling on June 29. And it seems to me that if Congress were acting responsibly, there would have been a standalone bill that extended the moratorium while at the same time, in this in my ideal world, providing compensation to landlords and not tenants. Because, And I think this is important because right, right now how it works is the tenants apply for it and there are all these documentation things. And there are a lot of tenants who may not have that. And, of course, it seems to me it's a lot more streamlined. And it focuses much more on the main issue if you provide it directly to the landlords. Of course, there are fewer landlords than there are tenants. Landlords, I think, are yeah. going to be much more likely to be in a position to and have the incentive to provide documentation, right, to qualify for these yeah. payments. And a- so, amen. You know, I, amen. I just think Congress completely dropped the ball on this. And it's just just one more instance where I, I find myself greatly disappointed that there wasn't anything, you know, anything that happened on, on this. And so that's that's a, I guess something probably will have to because it seems unquestionable to me that even even in a month, what Pre- President Biden said in his remarks that, well, at least this gives us about a month to get this right. money out. But the fact of the matter is, is this is not, you know, it's not like you just walk up to the government office and they give you money. You say, Hey, I'm a renter. Oh, here's, here's a couple thousand dollars. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a 
bureaucratic process. And like so many bureaucratic processes, it's, it's, it's uh, difficult. And again, if you're a renter, you might say, God, it's a pain in the butt. And I don't know, but I, I know that I can't be evicted. And so you got to think about incentives. And so I th- really think Congress was not thinking about what the incentives were and what would make this program work most efficiently when they put it together. So again, Congress. Ooh, I uh, think they were, I think they were thinking about incentives. Well, may- maybe they, um, they were, but in, in a wrong, in a wrong way then. <laughs> you know, and, and but, a lot of people well, are hurting. Other, Let me be other clear. Point to that is is then you know, assuming the the renter goes and goes through all the bureaucratic hoops and collects the money, uh, the landlord still has to chase him to get it. Yeah, right. There's no guarantee that that person, having received their check from the government, will then pay their rent. They might say, "Hey, free money," um, and uh, landlord would say, "Please pay me the rent," and the the person would then reply, "Well, no." And what you going to do about it? And so, why um, would you do it through the? Yeah, it just seems to me to be a a, a unnecessary step uh, in the, in the process. And you know, but I don't want to point out, you know, that you know there are around probably around I think eleven million renters in the data I saw that are at risk of eviction due to financial hardships. That's a that's a real thing. And on the other side, according to those, uh, the Alabama real estate agents who initiated uh, the first challenge on the moratorium, landlords have been losing over $13 billion in unpaid rent every month as a result of this. That's every month. And as you pointed out, yeah. Jay, a lot, sure, some of these people are big or some of these landlords are, are, are corporate. I mean, most of them are, but there's a significant chunk that are people that have maybe one or two properties and you, you cut them off from that, that fund. And that is their retirement income. Yeah, that's an enormous financial hardship. And and so this is not me saying, well, you know, the the hell with the the hell with the uh, renters of just a victim. It's me saying that Congress could have done something to prevent this and they didn't. And I'm, I'm hugely disappointed. Yeah. And I want to I want to throw uh, and and you are 100 percent right on that. And I I would also point out that, uh, look, these moratorium lawsuits. Um, the court started knocking these out back in February and March, right? Already there were a lot of district courts uh, that had, um, I think the Texas one was in February, the, the Ohio one was in March, the uh, uh, Tennessee one that went up to the Sixth Circuit, I believe that was also in, in March. So it's not even that, that this problem suddenly popped up uh, in, in June uh, when the Supreme Court uh, decided not to extend the more uh, extend the stay, or or decided to allow this this stay to to exist till the end till the end of the program. Right. Um, yeah, Congress has known about this for for quite a while. Uh, but the last piece I want to throw in this is just real world stuff. Also, uh, on the the people at risk of eviction, it is I've as an attorney I've handled plenty of evictions um, on both sides, and. Uh, the way it works is you usually go into court, um, you know, the judge says, okay, you, you're paying the rent. Yes, no. Um, and in most cases, before you even get there, though, the the, the attorneys, the, the landlords try to work something out because it's expensive to hire lawyers to go to court to evict somebody. Um, it's a pain. The process is not instantaneous. It's not like, you know, someone just says, oh, you're evicted and you're out the next day. It takes weeks or months, uh, sometimes even longer. Uh, and and usually, you know, what you do when you go to, to work stuff out in court is you work out a, you know, scheduled move out date, you know, and give people lead time. Um, 
uh, or you you find some way to put together a payment plan to keep them in there. Because again, in, in most cases, it's more expensive for a landlord to go find a new tenant than to to evict. Um, you know, they, they 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 get nothing out of um, eviction. Tends to be a, a losing proposition, if you will. Right. So. And- yeah, they're, it's, they're, it's sort of yeah. a last. It's sort of a last resort to cut your losses. Yeah, yeah, and so I think it's not the you know the sort of version that some people may have may have seen. It, it certainly can happen, but it's not legal yeah. for a landlord to come the day after the rents due is is to you know open the open up the apartment and throw everyone's stuff out and change the yeah. locks. Is that, yeah, well, and that, that would be a violation of of uh, all sorts of state laws exactly. in, in most every state. And yeah, that's that's just not how it works. And um. What the moratorium does, it, it prevents those those other conversations from happening of, hey, can we set up a payment plan or, hey, can you be out in two months or, or that sort of thing? Um, and, and it it also, you know, when you when you everything is frozen, right, when when no one can move anywhere, um, that prevents people from moving into maybe uh, lower price housing. Well, people um, can move. It's just the moratorium on evictions. It's not a moratorium on moving. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is, is those other places would not be opened up, right? I'm sure if, I see if, what you're saying. If there's no, if there's no, if there, everybody's staying put, right? Um, the supply isn't there. So I think uh, in the end, though, the thing that we we, we generally can, we, well, we can completely agree on is that uh, is our great disappointment in Congress for not doing something about this when something clearly could have been done. Right. And Cory Bush, rather than sleeping on the Capitol steps. Um, should have slept in Nancy Pelosi's office. You know, if you want really, if you really wanted to make the point, right? Yeah, yeah. I, um, so. I, I would have been, I, I would have been in a way disappointed, Jay, if you hadn't made a, a, a Corey Bush comment at some, oh, point, yes. <laughs> at some point in the article. Hey, uh, why, why don't we move on to our, our next story, also covered But before we do that, just take a quick break, and they will be right back. So in other COVID-related developments, the Delta variant continues to spread pretty aggressively throughout the country, and students are preparing to return for the new school year. In a few weeks, I'll be back teaching at NKU, where there is a mask mandate, so I'll be teaching in a mask. That should be that should be fun. Um, but this week, President Biden called out Republican governors standing in the way of mask mandates and vaccine requirements, saying, I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. The people are trying to do the right thing. Use your power to save lives. And while Biden didn't mention any specific governors in those comments, much of the focus has been on two of them, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott. On July 30th, Governor DeSantis issued an executive order prohibiting schools from imposing mask mandates and directing that all legal means available be used to ensure compliance, including withholding state funds from schools that impose mask mandates. And similarly, in Texas, Governor Abbott issued an executive order, this was back in May, that prohibited any governmental agencies from mandating masks with exemptions for state-owned or supported assisted living centers, hospitals, and correctional facilities. And right now, around half of all new infections and hospitalizations, at least in the past week or so, were just in seven southern states. Florida and Texas are the the leading two, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi, even though those states represent less than a quarter of the U.S. population. And just yesterday, Friday, August 5th, Florida reported more than 22,000 
new infections. That's the highest single day number since the pandemic started. And to give you a sense of how things are in Florida, three weeks ago, 3,652 people were hospitalized with COVID. Last week, 8,855. This week, this last week, the number was 12,227. It's a 234.8% increase in that period. So what do you think about this, Jay? Are these governors particularly focusing on, it seems like DeSantis has most of the focus. Uh, are they doing the right thing or is there an issue here? Is President Biden right? What do you think? Well, you try and I kind of hit on this last week. Um, in in that uh, is, you know, do do people do people do what their politicians tell them, or do politicians do what the people tell them? Um, and I tend to think it's it's more the latter. Um, and so, I guess I guess the the question is, yes, yeah, should more people get vaccinated? Absolutely. Should uh, uh, should these these governors be out there uh, uh, promoting? Hey, you ought to get vaccinated. Uh, absolutely. Um, should they be mandating uh, vaccinations or masks? Well, there I, I start to fall off a little bit because I'm, I'm not, one. I'm, I'm not sure that one. It is sort of a, an intrusion, um, and second, I'm not sure what what good it does at this point. Right? I mean, um, maybe we could if, separate out these issues, Jay, because it sounds to yeah. me in your response you're talking about three, at least as I count them, three separate things. One is encouraging vaccination and, and and mask usage. It's sort of trying to lead by example. The second thing is uh, having mask mandates. The third thing is having vaccine mandates. And I'd say a fourth right. thing is actually prohibiting, prohibiting those. mask yeah. mandates from lower yeah. uh, governmental levels. And so yeah. I, they're not all the same thing. And I think it's important that we sort of disaggregate those things. Maybe I think that's right. Yes. And maybe we start with sort of the most intrusive thing. And I think we can both both agree that the most intrusive sort of government action is telling people that they have to get uh, a non fully uh, fully approved uh, vaccine uh, to do well, you know, just as as a consequence of being being right. being being mm. a resident. So being alive. Right. Yes. That is my, my body, my choice, Mike. Yeah, that is the highest level. Right. And now nobody is, is I'm aware at this point is mandating or gov no governmental agency at this point is mandating vaccines. Now, that's going to change once uh, one of the vaccines is approved and the Pfizer vaccine is supposed to be FDA is hoping to give it approval by, by Labor Day, I think. And once that happens, there are a number of universities uh, and many of those are, you know, some of those might be state institutions, the defense right. department. You'd still have subdivisions yeah. and, and, and states, uh, states imposing a requirement on their employees, which is a little different than right. states imposing, imposing a requirement on citizens yeah. in general. And, and, but that, that is, that is to come. That certainly will come once we start to see regular FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine and then some of the other. So, but that's kind of for a, a future, right? A future discussion. Um, but, right. but let's move on to the, the issue of, of, not just discouraging uh, ma vaccine mandates at lower levels of government, but telling lower levels of government, uh, if you're the governor, you, you can't do this, in fact. So banning 
vaccine mandates from lower levels of government that are presumably closer to the people and the situation and would know better. And we've talked in the past about these concepts of, you know, subsidiarity and so forth. And it, yeah. I think it sounds to a lot of people, uh, at least on the left, that particularly Ron DeSantis is just trying to gin up the, the, the Donald Trumpist sort of anti-vax base. And as a result, you know, it's like one out of every five cases of COVID is coming out of Florida. And he's uh, this is this is actually costing people, you know, health and in some cases their lives to serve Ron DeSantis's political ambitions. Well, again, I think that's that's where I, I you kind of lose me a little bit. Right. Um, uh, and if you want to I, on, on the first part of, of what you just said, as far as is this DeSantis being uh, a political and trying to rev up the base? Yes. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not an actual concern there, though, too. Um, I, I would actually I have sort of part company from DeSantis on this as, as sort of an old school conservative um, local government type type person. Right. I thought you might. Um, yeah. yeah I, I mean, my my sense is, uh, um, you know, I think if, if those those local decisions ought to be left to local authorities. Uh, and if you want to fight it out over over you know whether your your kid has to be vaccinated to go to school if they're old enough to be vaccinated, um, then you know show up Monday night at the school board meeting and give them hell. Yeah. Um, you know I I I, I again I, that's just sort of a philosophical sort of you know the lowest level most accountable level and and look let let different communities decide for themselves what's best for those communities. So I'm not I'm not crazy about that, you know, a state saying you, you know, giving putting out those kind of blanket orders. Right. Um, at least, you know, in, in this in this circumstance now. You know, I, I think there could be there could be room a couple, you know, in, in, in other circumstances, uh, I, sometimes I do think the state needs this overstep uh, what the locals are doing. Um, but I, I, I just don't think this is one of them. Right. And it would um, probably be more in the other direction. I would, I would, at least I would argue that when there is a, a significant danger to public health, you, they would overstep yeah. maybe in that other direction. But, but yeah, I, I thought you would probably come down that way because I know you are a big fan of, you said, showing up at the local, you know, the, the local school board meeting and letting people in that area make decisions for themselves whenever it's feasible. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you. So, oh, go ahead. But, 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 you know, on the other the other piece of this, and this is what Trey and I talked about yesterday or yesterday <laughs> um, last week, um, you know, he raised the issue of, well, it, by by doing this, by by putting in these um, non these non mandate mandates, if you will, um, you know, does that he, he described as this prevent, presents a barrier to vaccination or mask wearing, which to me left me just just completely sort of, you know, nonplussed. Um, uh, which means confused, uh, because uh, you know, t- to me, it, it seems like look, no, the government isn't stopping you from getting a vaccination. In fact, they're encouraging it. In fact, you can get it at any corner CVS. You can, right? I mean, it, it's we're not in that that stage that we were six months ago, nine months ago, where you know you you know no one knows who's going to have the vaccine where and all that kind of thing. It's it's readily available everywhere for free. Um, so it's I I, I don't see this as the government standing in the way. Of, and the same thing for getting, masks. You can wear if you want to wear a mask. Yeah, you, it's yeah, not that the governor is saying that no one can wear a mask in a classroom or anything like that. Exactly. Would yeah, be I would. I would. I would say that is that is absolutely that. Some if they were to pass something like that, I would say that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, 
I think the point, uh, and I listened to, like I said, I listened to last week's episode. I think the point, Trey, what, what Trey was getting at, and, and this gets to your uh, the, your argument about the extent to which uh, people follow government. I, I, my sense was that Trey's argument was more along the lines of, well, by doing this, the governor is sending a signal that masks aren't needed and and and. You don't need, you know, you don't need to wear them. So I think that's what he meant by being a barrier, not actually a uh, a barrier in fact, a barrier in law, but more right. more discouraging the wearing of masks. I think that right. that was my. It's, it's my mind again. If, if words mean stuff, then barrier isn't the, the word to, to use then. Um, but it's, so the, I, I guess that that takes me to the next point that we sort of talked about is I. I think these these governors. I mean, if if you look, um, you know, this is this is the South, right? This is this is the way. Uh, I mean, do do you think these? I guess do you think these conservative Southern governors are more persuasive in in persuading their people uh, not to do this than say Northeastern governors are persuading people to get vaccinated or, or to wear masks? Uh, and I would say no. It's a matter of that's the that's sort of the innate place of where the that population is right you're going to have more resistance um in places uh, in the in the south it's it's a cultural thing and as we say a zillion times politics is downstream from culture um this isn't a you know i, I think the i don't think the attitude comes from the governor i think the governor's attitude reflects the attitude of the people right or wrong i mean yeah, you can I say think... these people are completely wrong completely ignorant but that's I think that's the way it, the, it goes, yeah, right? I, I think you and I probably disagree to a certain extent about uh, how how much leadership can move public opinion, but we do agree in the sense that it's predominantly culture and leadership. If it's going to do something, in most cases, it's probably going to be a marginal effect because those cultural attitudes are so baked in. So you and I, don't, again, it's a matter of where we both stand on that scale, I think. But one other thing I wanted to ask you about is sort of, as, as you know, as listeners probably know, uh, this week, this last week in New York City, it, while not mandating vaccines, became the first U.S. city to require proof of at least one dose of vaccine for a bunch of activities like uh, indoor dining, using gyms, uh, uh, going to the theater, that sort of thing. And that's similar to programs that were recently put in place in France and Italy. And also, uh, it's also similar, at least has some similarities in my mind, to President Biden's requirement that any federal civilian employees who aren't vaccinated We'll have to submit to regular COVID testing, social distancing, masking, and other tra- and, and, and a bunch of travel restrictions. So, I, w- I wanted to get your take on this sort of approach to, I guess I'd call it incentivizing vaccination. It's a yeah. pretty strong push in that direction. But what do you think about what New York New York City is doing? And you know, again, I think that that has some relationship to what President Biden is requiring for civilian employees. Well, you know, so I would start with the premise that uh, a private place of business uh, ought to be able to do uh, what it wants uh, up to the point that that's that's, you know, does isn't inconsistent with with people's civil liberties. Um, So I think if a a restaurant or a concert venue or someplace like that wants to say, listen, uh, we're only going to allow you in here if you can provide proof of vaccination or or what have you. Um, or if you wear a mask, uh, fair enough, right? Uh, if you do, you know, their, their place, their rules. 
Um, so I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I, I start to get a little queasy the closer the government gets involved in this. Um, right. Because, um, I, I, that's, you know, it's, it's for the, the government to encourage those places or, or to, you know, I, the, the, gov- the government shouldn't be able to accomplish something that it can't do constitutionally by enlisting the private sector to do it instead. Um, well, I mean, uh, I see, guess see, I, see Facebook, but, but that's it. So that's that's where I start to get to get queasy. And the other the other issue, and and this is difficult, and this is something that makes make COVID makes COVID difficult. And a lot of conservatives, uh, like me, see look there there's needs to to stand on principle uh, at some point um, because you can say, look, yeah, this makes sense during COVID, uh, but where are we going to be the next time around? Right. If the government can do this, if the government will encourage this sort of thing, um, you know, I, you could certainly make the argument a couple years down the road. Look, the flu kills uh, thousands of people a year, uh, many of them children. Um, you can get severe flus. Uh, should you should you be banned from someplace if you can't show proof that you got your flu shot? Um Right. There's that's that's it's the slippery slope. And you always say I'm, I'm overly concerned about slippery slopes. But I do. Uh, I, I think well, I think I think, it's, I think it's, you it's you, there. Well, I think you you have less faith in or oftentimes it seems to me like you have a lot of faith in dem, in democracy more do, more so than I do. But in this case, it seems like you have less because, of course, there is that level of accountability, because if if the gov say city government in New York put in place a measure saying that you needed, you know, you needed to be vaccinated against influenza to do all these things. Presumably, if that became too onerous, whatever the requirement is, the people would rise up and push back against it. But I, I You'd guess, hope so. Yeah. And, and so that that's how it in fact, there's actually more ability to do that when you're talking about government in a way than if you're talking about private businesses, especially if you're kind of, you know, locked into some businesses mm-hmm. infrastructure for various reasons, because well, you I mean, less well, depends, depends, I think you're right. It depends on the business, though, because sure. the 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 uh, pressure that, that comes to bear on government uh, typically only comes around once every two or four years. Pressure that's brought to bear on a business uh, hits immediately. Right? right. If nobody's going there anymore, yeah. it hits them in the pocketbook right away, as opposed to yeah. uh, the next election cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds to me your quizziness is based less on this being unconstitutional, but more on it just being governmental overreach that may be may be legal, but is inadvisable. Would that yeah. Be, no, I think yeah. that's I think that's right. I yeah. think that's a good description. And, and um, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a, a constitutional problem right. here at, at, at this point about what we're talking about. Um, now, if you had something like a, a vaccine mandate uh, that just by by virtue of being a citizen, you have to be be vaccinated or, you know, or what you'll be sent to jail or something. I, I think that would be a constitutional yeah. problem. Yeah. Uh, but but less so. Again, this has been you know litigated and ruled on years and years and forever that, look, if you want to send your kid to public school and public school has the right to say, look, they have to have these vaccinations before they start. Uh, you know, that's right. that's kind of reasonable. And that's been the law for forever. And I don't see that that changing as far as a constitutional matter, but the uh, the laundry list of of things that you might have to do or uh, papers that you might have to show places. Uh, I think that's that's troubling. Right, and and I think you, one could argue especially troubling given that 
even though, you know, the scientific community has a lot of faith in these vaccines, that they still only do have emergency use authorization. And there's a reason why there's a process that takes, you know, even when you super rush it, at least half a year, because we don't know long-term side effects. And I understand that obviously has to be weighed against the clear and present danger of COVID. But, you know, that the the situation, the picture changes, I think, for me at least, once Pfizer and Moderna and these other vaccines have full authorization, then it becomes a little easier for government to put in yeah. place a, a stronger requirement. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I would just throw out one more thing on, on vaccines. And this is yeah. sort of, um, again, I'll, I'll say thought experiment. Um, and that that sometimes not everyone understands what I mean by that. But um you know, something that that has occurred to me is that, you know, obviously it, it's crazy that, uh, you know, there's conspiracy theories of, well, you know, they're injecting a microchip in me uh, and they'll be able to track me and control me and all that stuff. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy tinfoil hat nonsense. But 20, 30 years down the road, it might not be. Right. And and I, I, I just I can conceive of, you know, so one day, uh, you know, whatever. Microsoft or, or whomever comes out with a product and they say, look, we can inject you with this, uh, this microchip, this, this will uh, regulate all these, these diseases, this will uh, prevent all sorts of things. Uh, this will be able to, if you're, you know, if your children get lost or kidnapped, you'll be able to find out where they are. There's all kinds of really good reasons uh, why we ought to do this. Um, at that point, does, does one refuse? And then on what ground, right? If if we've ceded the ground all the way up to that point, the right to privacy uh, we, we in the, the Constitution, the point, right? 30, yeah. No, I years. see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. As Jay Kareem's down the slippery slope, conspiratorial but... and saying there's there's microchips in the vaccine, and that's of course not what I'm saying. Sure. No. 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 I know you're not saying that at all. But, but yeah. All right. Well, I think we can. Uh, we, we at least. It would be weird to not have a show, at least in the last few months, without talking about infrastructure, at least a little bit. And so, but before we do that, we're going to take one final quick break and we'll be right back to talk about infrastructure. So, Jay, you know, the last time you and I talked about infrastructure, uh, the prospect for a truly bipartisan deal, I think to you at least, seemed sort of remote. But since yeah. but since then, you know, it's become more promising, right? Last uh, late this week, Chuck Schumer, Majority Leader, filed a cloture motion to break the current filibuster, and a number of sources say that it's really a question now, not so much of if, but when this is going to pass. And even Mitch McConnell, who previously said that he is. 100% focused on stopping President Biden's agenda, has said of this infrastructure bill, there's an excellent chance it will be a success story for the country. That's Mitch McConnell. Now oh, that, that's, yeah, it's your boy. There yeah. you go. Now, that's a roughly, it's a roughly one He's trillion, now only 80% focused on stopping the agenda. 100%. And that's his words, you know. Anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a roughly $1 trillion measure, $550 billion in new spending. And recently, just this last week, it was scored by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget, uh, uh, Budget Committee with uh, increasing the deficit by $256 billion over 10 years. Now right. this could, and it, it had been it had been sold as as budget neutral that right. it sort of paid for itself right so the CBO says I said congressional budget committee congressional budget office sorry said no two hundred fifty six billion dollars over ten years now 
that could result in maybe a few Republicans kind of pulling back because, as you pointed out, the negotiators on both sides said that argued that it would be pretty much budget neutral. And the big issue was how CBO and uh, Congress viewed the savings from repurposing COVID funds. The lawmakers said, well, this is going to save around $210 billion over 10 years. CBO said, nah, only $13 billion, which is a pretty big, big gap there. So, Right. And, and if you look at and again, I'm not an accountant, but um, yeah, so much of, of what they're doing is, is this sort of accounting magic where they're where they're claiming savings um, in, for money that's sort of already been spent or money that, that you're just using for something else. So you're, you're, you're sort of double counting. Yeah, it gets very uh, in the weeds. It, it even even uh, even Paul Krugman, a former Enron uh, economist advisor, has called uh, uh, accounting chicanery. Um, although he's for it, he said we ought to see more chicanery. Um, but, but uh, um, yeah, yeah. So, I, it's, l- l- let it, me ask it's, you this. So it seems like this is going to happen. And it seems like there's a there's a very strong likelihood that even by the time maybe some listeners hear this episode that uh, the filibuster, the cloture, cloture motion may now, already be too late. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think changed? Because a few weeks ago, I mean, when I asked, you know, I asked you and you said, you think this is going to be bipartisan in any meaningful sense? Your sense, as I recall, was not not going to end up happening. So what do you think changed? Where even Mitch McConnell says, yeah, yep, we're doing infrastructure. So, I mean, my sense there was was based on the fact that um, McConnell seemed to have gotten burned by by Biden. Uh, who said, okay, yeah, here's the deal, and this will pass, uh, so long as you also pass uh, the next big um, uh, uh, spending plan, the anti-poverty piece, uh, which is now, at, you know, proposed at three, three and a half trillion. Um, so do I think this gets through the Senate? Yeah, I, I do. Um, and maybe Republicans just felt the need to feel, feel like they were doing something. And again, infrastructure, uh, the word infrastructure is very popular. Um, and, and the idea of, of fixing highways and bridges and, and, uh, all that sort of thing is something that a lot of people think, including myself, uh, look, that's a, a appropriate function of, of the government. Uh, but what this does, and I think as, as the details come out, you might see more resistance, um, of this, this, um, uh, roughly $1 trillion, uh, as I'm reading about 23% or 127 billion goes to uh, that sort of traditional infrastructure, right? Fixing the highways, fixing waterways, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, there is a, a, a big piece that goes to um, uh, public transit. There's a like 66 billion to Amtrak, um, which again, you guys love your trains. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think there's there's another 21 billion earmarked for environmental remediation, which again is a little a little fuzzy, um, and and 50 billion you know is also to, assigned to a fuzzy category called uh, climate resilience. Um, I, I think as this comes out, you may see more Republicans uh, have cold feet about it. Now, does that change the Senate vote? Yeah, I don't know, um, but. The other interesting piece is this still has to get past the House. And and I don't know that uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, who has said she wants it tied uh, to the anti-poverty piece, uh, will pass it. I mean, she said she's not going to give it a vote unless the Senate passes uh, the $3.5 uh, trillion anti-poverty piece. Now, 
that that's probably a bargaining position, right? That uh, you can you can get that reduced. But I, I still think that's going to be a bigger problem uh, than than what uh, I mean. What you're anticipating? I mean, the Senate's going to pass that just because they're going to do it under reconciliation rules. That that three point five trillion. So that's well, not even. No, see, that's what I mean. That was that was Trey's Trey's point too. But to get to reconciliation, they still need to get to fifty. And I, I don't know that they do as things stand right now. It might not be. Yeah, it might end up being three point five trillion because there are a couple of more right. moderate conservative, you know, blood Democrats that you have to persuade. But it's going to be it's going to be something, you know, I think. But let me ask you this. So some people might think that. Well, well I mean, I guess that's, that's the question, right? I mean, if Pelosi's piece, if Pelosi is saying, I don't give this a vote unless I get the three three point five trillion. Um, you know, it's it's where does where does she is she? At what point does she draw the line and say I'm just not giving a vote if unless it's you know what's the drop dead number? Yeah, I think. Uh, and, well, and can they get that? Can they get fifty votes for that? See, I think you know Pelosi follows her follows her caucus, and uh, I think that the votes are going to the the support's going to be there in the Democratic caucus. Now, some might say, well, you know the the squad has become emboldened. You know, Cory Bush and the whole thing about the moratorium, and you know, and then certainly. I would argue that the the progressive left is a greater voice in the Democratic caucus than it has been. But I think that the manifest benefits of an infrastructure bill that has real bipartisan support are going to be great enough to overcome that. And maybe there are going to be a few votes, Democratic votes against this. And I think Pelosi is going to be fine with allowing those so long as it squeaks through. But I think it will. I think it will squeak through a few extra votes. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, AOC, Cory Bush, a few other people vote against it, saying it's not enough. And, you know, Pelosi behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I, I don't disagree with that. I guess my my question is, is Pelosi going to make good on her pledge that she's not going to bring that to the floor unless and until the Senate passes uh, the big anti-poverty piece? Yeah, and I guess she. she I, I, yeah. I agree. The Democrats can get the votes in the House. I don't think they can get the votes in the Senate for the uh, the three point five. And if, right. if the two are tied uh, together, as as uh, Pelosi has proposed, then that's sort of a problem for both of them. Well, and to be to be clear, the two cannot be or are not being tied formally. They are not right. the same piece of legislation. So by I think we need to be clear about what we mean by that word tied. They're not right. tied in any legislative way. It's not the same bill or anything like that. There's not a specific clause in one saying that the enactment of this is contingent upon the passage of another. This is just an right. informal sort of thing. So the word, you know, it, it's contingent, but only in a political way. And again, my right. argument and Trey's but argument. This is a bit, it's a political process. And right. at the end of the day, it's still the speaker who gets to determine whether the bill goes to the floor. Right. And, and in the end, both. Both of these things are going to pass. The infrastructure bill is going to pass with a with bi- real bipartisan support. And then after that, the uh, the three point five or somewhere maybe less than that uh, trillion is going to pass with no Republican support. And uh, I think that's where that's where we will be. But let me ask you a strategic question. Mitch McConnell is well known for being a master strategist, right? Someone who I would certainly argue has much less concern about policy than he does about doing everything he can to ensure that Republicans uh, have as much power as they possibly can in the Senate. And some would say that, well, this is very smart 
by Mitch McConnell because this demonstrates going forward that the Senate doesn't need to end the filibuster to make big things happen. So he gives, in a way, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema cover to say, well, what do you mean we have to end the filibuster because the Senate is complete lockstep? Look, we passed a trillion-dollar infrastructure measure, the biggest infrastructure plan in, you know, a long time. And we did it with bipartisan support. So, boom, that ends the discussion in any real way of eliminating the filibuster. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's I I think you're now you're now you're really thinking there. That's yeah, you're firing all cylinders. Um, that that sounds like some sort of cynical thing that I would say. Um, so, but, you know, it no, can be I, cynical, I, but it also can be an argument, a real argument, because, in fact, if. The Senate does do big things without uh, without eliminating the filibuster. That does, in fact, prove that big things can't be done without eliminating the filibuster, even if it's done because in part of the threat of eliminating the filibuster, if you follow me. So it can be cynical yeah, and also yeah. accurate, I guess, is what I'm yeah. saying. Well, and also it, it, it then Mitch McConnell can then raise funds for, for Senate candidates who can who can completely vote against uh, the 3.5 or whatever. Uh, trillion. Um, he can go out and fundraise and say, "Look, this is why we need a Republican Senate to to stop these this crazy spending spree." Right, right. So, and you yeah. know, uh, pulling back. Well, I mean, part okay. of it, look, part part of this this is knowing the ground and knowing you know knowing where you're going to win and where you're going to lose. And yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those. You know, George Washington, you know, lost more battles than he won, but you know, he he picked the right ones to win and the right ones to to pull out of. Um, and this may be one. I, again, I'm still um, questioning whether Democrats can get the 50 votes on, um, on on the numbers they're talking about now. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable. Uh, and and I, I think, be... let's put it this way, will they get 50 votes at some point? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't think at the numbers they're talking about now. And I guess the question is, does how, how serious is, is Nancy Pelosi on holding to those numbers? Right. Uh, and how serious is like her, her the, the left part of her caucus to holding to those numbers? Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. That, that, it seems like we both agree that both of these things will pass, though. With the really the real question is what the final numbers will look like, but they're going to be big. <laughs> Certainly, we we know that. And you know, moving back to policy, it seems to me what's clear to me. Anyone who looks at infrastructure spending in the United States, it's it, it's not a pretty picture. If it's been in, as if we look at it as in, say, in terms of a percentage of GDP, it's been in pretty steep decline since that sort of mini boom that followed the financial crisis. And right now, infrastructure spending is just over 2% of GDP, which actually is a record low. Of this. I was able to look at numbers from far back as the early 80s, and it's never been that low. And you know, that's a real problem. It, it seems to me that it's worth considering, just considering it, and maybe there are some downsides to this, but having a certain baseline of infrastructure maintenance spending uh, in mandatory spending as opposed to discretionary spending. What I mean by that, for people who don't know the distinction, is that it would be automatic unless Congress specifically voted to cut it, like Social Security is for one big example. Because it seems to me, Jay, that maintenance particularly is one of the easiest things to cut because the effects aren't immediately apparent, 
and it's not spending that gives you anything, you know, new and shiny. And that's that's exactly the reason I, I look outside right now at my driveway. I have this big, long drive. Our driveway is 110 yards long. It's ridiculous. And it's a mess because I put off the maintenance spending on getting it resealed and all that. And now I, I'm regretting that. If only it were automatic spending, then I wouldn't have be looking at a multi-thousand dollar driveway repair job, you know, and, and that's how infrastructure is, you know, in a way. And I, I think there's something to be said for building this in automatically as opposed to just waiting and waiting and waiting until we're at a, you know, a point where we have just huge infrastructure, real physical infrastructure deficits. You know, GAO a few years back said that almost a quarter of all bridges in this country are structurally deficient or functionally obsolete. And so, I don't know. What, what what do you think about that sort of kind of protecting Congress from its itself in a way, in the same way that I wish I protected my I put aside some some money for regular driveway maintenance? Well, I, I'm I'm not crazy about any putting putting the economy, putting Congress's uh role in this in, in is in sort of autopilot, right? Because uh, I think what you do is you you just keep ratcheting up the spending year over year. Uh, always and forever, and and that's a problem. Um, look, I, I think you know if, if we want to have the, a, a representative uh, government, then then yeah, people should be able to come back to their constituents and make the case of this is something we need to do. And and I would rather see Congress making those arguments, making the case of look, let's let's fund this need, needed infrastructure, let's fix the bridges, let's fix the roads, as opposed to uh, hey, here's a a you know. $50 billion for climate resilience. Um, yeah, no, and I think those are good I, I think points. That's, I mean, I, look, let's, let's, let's hold their, their, their feet to the fire. And, and it happens, right? I mean, when, when the roads start getting bad, people do complain. People do say, look, this is ridiculous that um, uh, our, you know, our airports are falling apart. And our, so, but I mean, that's no, the problem, I, I, it I, seems. I don't, I, I, don't like, I don't like things that alleviate the pressure on Congress, if you will. It seems to me that's the problem specifically with infrastructure, just like with in, in another uh, in a whole another domain, healthcare. that oftentimes preventative maintenance, yet doing things before they become problems and noticeable problems actually ends up being a lot less expensive, a lot less hazardous than waiting until they are real problems. And that's exactly the time at which oftentimes these things don't get done. It's like, ah, the road's OK or ah, the bridge is OK. But, you know. That in X number of years, it's not going to be the case. And that repair is going to be so much more expensive than if you just simply taken care of the basic maintenance in the first place. And that that's what I'm saying. You know, Trey, last yeah, no, week. I look, I think that's part of responsible government. I'm just um, uh, I, I'm just against uh, putting things on on autopilot. Well, yeah, and and I think there's there's a point to be made, not completely on autopilot, but because, some sort because of here's, because baseline here's the thing, right? When when with those those improvements, sometimes you're going to need the money, sometimes you're not, right? Well, well that's that's it, my it, point. It, yeah, yeah, but I think you can design so it in just, such you know, a way. The money just keeps coming in, and well, we need more, we need more, and and it, it's it's sort of the baseline effect, right? You say, well, look, this is the the baseline of, of what we need to spend. And, you know, if it's any less the next year, well, you're slashing budget for infrastructure. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's, that's the problem I have. Um, well, I think there's, there's a way to design uh, a regular uh, appropriation or infrastructure so that it wouldn't be that kind of boondoggly sort of, cause there is just a real baseline of maintenance that is just, 
absolutely yeah. necessary. And it's pretty clear that in many instances, that absolutely necessary baseline maintenance that's not bridges to nowhere or anything like that is not being done. So I think a, a large part of it is how one crafts the legislative language. And maybe you think that it would be done in such a way that it would be a boondoggle. And certainly there's plenty of precedent to suggest that, you know, you, you may be right in that. But to me, the, the sort of the devil uh, would be in the details there. So so let me just, um, this is just a, a local sort of example. I've got, uh, I live on a street uh, that, uh, it's a fairly wide street, but fairly uh, high, high traffic, I guess. Um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very pretty. It's near the lake. It's, you know, so it's, a lot of people ride their bikes. Um, so we recently put in, not we, I mean the, the city, um, uh, put in these, these bike lanes, uh, on this road, um, which I, I love riding bikes. Uh, I think it's, it's great. But the problem is most of the in most places of the roads, it's not really wide enough for a bike lane, especially two bike lanes. And they change the, the parking and um, it, it's now just really sort of sort of a mess. And you're swerving all around and you have people who ride three by three in the bike lane and halfway. So it, it's it wasn't well thought out. Um, and I, I said something to a friend of mine who's a city council member. And I said, Jesus, this, this bike lane's just a, a mess. You know, did anybody think about it? And he's like, well. You know, what's the the county uh, uh, gave us money for it, and that was that was sort of the rationale. Well, look, the, the county said we'll pay you money if you put in the put in this this bike lane. And again, that the county money flowed from some federal infrastructure uh, plan at some point. But you know what we ended up with is is really sort of a a weird and and I think in a lot of cases dangerous sort of sort of situation. Um, because well, here we had some money. We better spend it on something. Now it could have been spent on something better, but then someone locally said, "Well, you know, bikes save the environment, so let's let's put this." Uh, sure, and I, I don't, I don't. This and, and that's that's my kind of thing. Is if you just have this automatic spending, then um, people get the money. There's, it's not necessary that they're going to do something smart with it or do what you you hope that they do with it. Um, well, you're right. But I think you would again, just make sure there's enough strings attached. Yeah, and now of course, and I recognize that almost invariably you can never attach enough strings because there are always loopholes around it, and so that that is a fair. But that's why I just sort of threw this well, out well, as and a, the other thing is for for local people at the county level, uh, they say, "Lo, we we opened up, um, um, you know, more bike lanes." For access to to ride along the lake and tree lined streets and all that, and everyone says, "Yay, that's great." Um, uh, you know, again, when you maybe could have used that money to fix the potholes. Sure. Yeah. And and again, it's a matter of how the language is crafted and so forth. But it is. I think we can both agree that it's. We come back to this theme because, well, I think there's a good reason is that Congress is acts acts irresponsibly or doesn't act quickly enough on many important things. And it's frustrating. And I think the maybe the instinct on my end and in part on the left is to make that more of an automatic thing. And 
the instinct on on the right, especially on the libertarian right, is to say, well, people should just behave better and be more rational. And that gets to, I think, uh, you know, you and I oftentimes have that disagreement about, you know. Uh, well, or, or in, insist on, on better governance from their representatives. Yeah. And so I, I tend to think that's somewhat of a fool's error, but I understand what you're saying. So anyway, uh, so, you know, we, we are, we went, we've gone a little bit long and we did not get to uh, the new Biden pollution rules or anything about Governor Cuomo or uh, all those other things, whether or not, Jay, you are, in fact, a defender of freedom or whether you are ignoring really the well or whether or not you are. There, are, there have been some people in the last week who said that I should stop calling you that. We're very upset and have a lot to say about you and Donald Trump and, and, and all that and all that stuff we are going to talk about. We are going to talk about in the bonus show, which we'll be recording in just, oh, probably about three minutes, in fact. And again, this week it will be available right away at the same time. We're trying this out as an experiment. Let us know. If you if you want to get the bonus show and you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys and you can sign up and get it. And again, if you would like the bonus show but you can't afford to support the podcast, send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, please do. And ratings and reviews help as well as sharing episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, mail at politicsguys.com is our email address. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to those in our show notes. A special thanks to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.